Welcome to The Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss. On this episode of The Litigation War Room, I speak with Dan Sharkey, a supply chain litigator who has been ranked as a top 10 lawyer in the state of Michigan. Dan talks about an automotive case in which he helped his client achieve a great result by shaping the record to the client's advantage long before a lawsuit was filed. Along the way, Dan offers great insights on counseling business clients and positioning a case for success. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Dan Sharkey, welcome to the Litigation War Room. Thank you, Max. Appreciate you having me. Well, I appreciate your taking the time out to join us on the podcast. I'm very excited to talk with you today and to learn more about your law practice and to hear about a very interesting case that you and I discussed before the show, a case called DNS Machine Products v. ThyssenKrupp Bilstein of America. That's taking me back to my college German. I hope I, I pronounced that correctly or at least close enough. And I know our listeners will be interested to hear some of your reflections on the practice of law and how you prepared that case and, and in particular, how you prepared your client to uh, succeed in that case in its very early stages. But we, before we turn to those things, why don't you tell our listeners just a bit about yourself and about your law practice? Sure. Uh, I'll try to keep it brief. Everybody loves to talk about themselves, I know, but others tend to find it boring, but I'll keep it to maybe two minutes. Just to go back, a native Detroiter pretty much after moving from Ohio, uh, I was ROTC in college and summarizing 12 years and 15 seconds, I essentially had a four-year obligation, active four years reserve, and I took an ed deferment to go to law school. So I went to law school and uh, after I got out of law school, I went in the Army JAG Corps to do, sort of do my time that I owe the government for paying for my college. And I was very fortunate because I got put in an infantry division with 25,000 soldiers and all kinds of crimes and other things going on, a very busy place where we did a lot of courts martial. And uh, so I got to try 40 or 50 courts martial in just uh, two or three years. Uh, so it was a great, wow. uh, great trial experience. Everything from dumb little disobeying order cases all the way up to murder and rape, child molesters and some nasty stuff. And then they put me in the U.S. Attorney's Office for my last year because they knew I was getting out. So I was uh, actually about half the time in uniform, about half the time in a suit my final year. And I was a special assistant U.S. Attorney. So I essentially did the same thing, but I prosecuted civilians in federal district court, the U.S. District for the Southern District of Georgia. So that that's kind of what got me to, I just summarized the first 30 years of my life. And then I, then I came in 99, I came back to the uh, home here to Detroit. And I joined Butts Along. I spent uh, about nine or 10 years at Butts Along doing the litigation associate thing, young partner. And 12 years ago, a few of my partners and I started this firm, which is a boutique litigation shop in Birmingham. And we focus on commercial litigation. And Dan, tell our listeners the name of your, your firm. Those in the Detroit area will be familiar. And I know you have a national practice and reputation, but we do have a nationwide audience. So, so um, <laughs> You're being kind. I don't know about that. What? <laughs> but but uh, I, 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 we're way more humble than that. The other guys would laugh too if they heard you say that. But thank you. I appreciate the compliment. Our firm name is Brooks, Wilkins, Sharkey, and Turco. And my partners are Keith Brooks, Matt Wilkins, Mike Turco, and also Burt Donovan. And uh, we have about 20 attorneys. And 
again, we focus on commercial litigation. I tend to do more automotive supply chain. Just that's how I drifted. One of my partners does a lot of real estate disputes. One does a lot of shareholder disputes. Matt Wilkins tends to do bankruptcy, financially distressed suppliers. My partner, Bert Donovan, does a lot of commercial litigation also, but he has a really nice expertise in warranty claims and recalls and uh, NHTSA, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration issues. But that's what we do in two minutes. Okay, that's great. That's great. I think of you as an auto supply chain guy, and I know you a lot of, uh, do a lot of litigation in that area and have a reputation in that area, but I know you also do other types of commercial litigation. You said you drifted into auto supply chain disputes. Can you tell us a little bit more? Did that start back when you were at Butzel Long, or was that after you started your current firm? No, that was at Butzel. You remember those monster.com ads with little kids like, you know, I want to be this, I want to be that. I, I certainly did not have this great notion, I'm going to be an auto supply chain lawyer one day. Hardly. I think like most lawyers probably listen to this now, you you find you just do a few different things and you like one thing and you tend to be good at it because you like it and you get a passion for it and you keep doing it. And before you know it, you wake up and that's your practice area. So my story very quickly was, as soon as I got to Butzel, within a few months, one of our clients was Delphi. Delphi was then the largest automotive supplier in the world. They had just spun off from General Motors, and they were still a $30 billion company back then. And their head of litigation, he won't mind my saying his name because he's a good friend. His name was Charlie Brown. And Charlie was a former Marine, Vietnam vet, and worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office. So we got along like frickin' frack very well. We were on the same wavelength. And we did one case in particular. We were getting tooling out of Southside Chicago. Somebody put a gun, uh, somebody, a supplier put a gun to Delphi's head. We ended up getting a really good result. And the next case came in with the steel supplier, and the next case, and the next case. And before I knew it, Cranes, Detroit Business, started covering these cases because a lot of people were interested in what was going on with supply chain fights. So I started getting my name in cranes and people started calling. And and then the, sort of the next step, it just mushroomed from there. The original Equipment Suppliers Association, which is the Automotive Suppliers Trade Association, asked me to give a speech on some of the cases I'd been handling because they had a lot of questions about them. I did. And that was really a watershed moment for my career because the phone just started ringing off the hook back in 01, 02, maybe. And it sort of never stopped. It's been 20 years. And that's how I got where I am. Uh, we, we all have a story, and that and that's that's mine. I don't know if the, whether it's exciting or not, but it's it's how I got to where I am. Well, I certainly think it's of interest to our listeners, and and I've got to ask you, um, anybody who follows the news, really anybody who's conscious knows that we're in the midst of a worldwide supply chain crisis. How does that affect the auto industry, and how does it affect your law practice? Uh, uh, in, in two minutes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Actually, take as much time as you like, as much or, or, or as little, but but I do want to get your take on that. I'm only laughing because you asked two questions, and I was going to say uh, bad and good. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, it has been really tough for the automotive suppliers. Our clients are hurting. There's a lot of facets to the supply chain crisis that has followed COVID. Uh, one is semiconductor chips, steel, resin, freight, labor. There's a lot of constraints now. And all you need to do is open the Wall Street Journal every morning, literally every single morning. Sometimes there's multiple stories. But the chip crisis, just to take that, I won't talk about each one, but that that has reduced production for vehicles by 20 to 25% in 2021. And so imagine you're running any business and somebody says, okay, something just happened. You're going to have 25% less revenue this year than last year. It hurts because that, that marginal revenue is where you make your profit. 
And so our firm, it's the old lawyers thing. And everybody listening to this is lawyers. We, we sort of, you hate to say you profit from others' misery, but other people's problems are opportunities. We're having our best year of our 12 years. We've never been busier. We're trying to hire people. We're working weekends and nights because we're trying to keep with, up with all these disputes. And I, I want to emphasize, this is the litigation war room. I think probably 90% of these disputes do not play out in a courtroom. I always say that the ones in the middle go to court, the really big ones don't, and the really small ones don't. And what, what I mean by that is, and we all know if you're fighting over 100, 150, even a couple hundred thousand dollars, most people don't want to go to court. It's just not worth it. The transactional costs are not there. Contrary-wise, on the other side, sometimes you have so much at stake, hundreds of millions of dollars, and, and only a couple times in my career, billions. But uh, when you have nine-figure disputes, and we have several of them all the time, it's almost like two 800-pound walruses, and they can't really fight. They just snort at each other. And then one of them decides, I'm going to, you know, he looks a little bigger. I think I'll back away. Because if they really fought, they would gore each other to death. And, and that's the mutual interdependence of a large tier one and an OE. On the one hand, OE, OEM means original equipment manufacturer. That's what we call car makers, Ford, GM, Nissan, Honda, et cetera. So if you are supplying, I don't know, steering, brakes, pick, pick a part, whatever, it doesn't matter. Every single day, every not just every day, but sometimes multiple times per day because they only want to keep a couple hours of inventory on hand, you can shut down that car maker within hours. And the OEM needs you. On the other hand, the supplier needs the customer because that's the revenue source. So they are very much interlocked. And it's a very interesting dynamic, to say the least, when you uh, when you get into a fight between a large OEM and a multi-billion dollar tier one. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah, funny your observation about how lawyers tend to profit from clients' misery. The one thing you don't want to do when sitting and talking to a client about their uh, the miserable circumstance they find themselves in is, oh, that is so interesting. Because from a lawyerly perspective, the last thing, you know, I wouldn't want my brain surgeon saying, oh, you present a really interesting case. <laughs> you know, I'm really going to, you know profit from this and enjoy this professionally like uh, i'd much rather have a simple yeah. <laughs> a simple problem for my for my surgeon that's exactly right you don't want to bring in other doctors hey check out this guy right and and it, it is absolutely true that the cases we find most interesting are the close difficult ones with a lot of media issues and those are the most expensive and that's and really backing up when you when you start to do this for years your clients start to call you and say I don't want to get into another lawsuit. How, how do I prevent this next time? And my answer is, let us look at the contract. Look before you leap. And so what we do, and we have three or four of our lawyers, it's about all they do now is, at least the majority, is they mark up contracts and they try to prevent our clients from getting into bad deals in the first place. You're really sort of reverse root causing it back back to the source. And that that to me I never would have thought when I was an old prosecutor trying to put get bad guys in jail that I I want to be anywhere other than the courtroom. But when you can prevent problems for clients, they stay loyal for a very long time. And that's really um, some of the value that a seasoned litigator can add. You know, when you're at the contract drafting stage or revision stage or at the transactional stage, yeah, there are specialists who do wonderful work in those areas and do work that many of us litigators can't do. But us litigators. We have some insights as to how these things actually play out when a dispute erupts. I think you're being very nice the way you said that, Max. I think a lot of quote-unquote corporate lawyers are really good at doing deals and M&A. But when, they, when a client says, hey, I got a supply chain contract from a big customer. Can you take a look? And they start to dabble. 
I see their markups and I just scratch my head because they're they're really focused on the wrong thing because they don't have the real world experience we litigators have of what actually matters, what people fight about, and how they get in trouble. Right. And plus, there is so much pressure to just get the deal done. Don't be the guy who holds it up. Yeah, that, that's my... Uh... That's my world, man. I, I'm on conference calls all day with, <laughs> I, I'm the lawyer, the VP of sales is on. Before COVID, I could hear it in their voice. Now, sometimes I can see their face on the Brady Bunch screen for Zoom or MS Teams. And they're just saying, oh, please, lawyer, shut up. I want to. I just want to get my purchase order. And I'm saying, I try to respect that, right? There's this, the classic risk return trade-off, right? So, so you can't go nuts about every potential risk or you'd never leave your porch, right? But at the same time, there's a trade-off there. And when you see a client who is biting off a huge potential risk, you know, we, we have a duty at least to flag it and make them aware of it. So, hey, you can sign this, but this is what you're getting into. Now, I do want to talk about uh, one particular case. On the litigation war room, we like to, when we can, um, drill down on a particular case that a guest has handled. Often that's very interesting, yield some interesting stories and insights. And, and you've, of course, handled a number of important and high-dollar, high-stakes cases. Uh, but I want to talk about one in particular, and it's this Bilstein case, which I know this is the world you live in. This is an automotive supply chain dispute. It's a UCC2 case. But in particular, when you and I were chatting in preparation for this podcast, you had some really interesting insights about preparing your clients and preparing your record from day one. So I'm just wondering, Dan, if you could kind of walk us through that case from the from the beginning at whatever level of detail you feel is appropriate, but but kind of set us up here with the facts of the case. What led to this dispute in the first place? Sure. I appreciate it, Max. And to me, the reason I raised it when we were chatting is to me it was the example of how when you get a lawyer involved early, a stitch in time doesn't save nine. A stitch in time can save like nine hundred. Because you can really uh, shape the record positively for your client. So I'll, I'll try to keep this quick, just a couple of minutes, because in some ways it's a garden variety commercial dispute. The only thing that separated it was the stubbornness on both sides got it all the way up to the Sixth Circuit, right? Because sometimes people get in commercial disputes and after a few months they say, enough's enough, let's, let's, let's make peace. And uh, these two particular business owners, neither one of them wanted to give an inch, and here we, there we were, right? So... What happened in DNS, DNS Machine, uh, it was a family-owned business, just mom, dad, you know, sons working on the business. I believe they were down in southeast Indiana, and they made a little stamped-out part, a little, actually it was on a dial machine, not a stamp part. Doesn't matter, but it was a little $2 subcomponent that went onto the shock assembly that Bielstein, Bielstein makes shocks, they're down in Hamilton, Ohio, outside of Cincinnati, and they take all these components, and there's there's a lot of components on a shock assembly. There's probably between 20 and 30. But it's just this $2 part that went on top. And this particular supplier was upset. The volumes weren't materializing like we had envisioned anybody. And this shock went on to a Mercedes product. The Mercedes vehicle was assembled down in Alabama outside Tuscaloosa. So this is just sort of your typical tier, you know, automotive dispute fight. But so DNS is the tier two who supplies to our client, Bielstein, who supplies to Mercedes the, OE, the OEM. And they decide, I want a list of these demands. I want all this money and I want all these things because this hasn't panned out the way I had envisioned and I need to get an acceptable return. It was a long list. Actually, the letter went on for pages, the original letter. And 
fortunately, I had a relationship with ThyssenKrupp, not just Bielstein, but many other holdings it had at the time. And I worked very closely with the in-house counsel. Uh, a gentleman, this is this is back uh, years ago, but his name is Tom Yatsik. He's now at Trelleborg. Uh, Tom, I don't, he won't mind my mentioning his name because he's a fantastic in-house lawyer. And he he said, I don't want another big fight like we had, or if we have a fight, I want to win. We just got this letter. What do we do? And so we, what we did is we kind of choreographed the communication so our purchasing team followed the law. They followed UCC, Article 2, not to get geeky, but 2609, 2610, et cetera, about adequate assurances and anticipatory repudiation and all those things. And just walked through the statute because there is a playbook people don't realize, but if you actually sit down and read the code, Professor Llewellyn and all his cronies, you know, 60 years ago, <laughs> wrote, wrote a pretty darn good script for both sides, buyer and seller. Yeah. So we did it and he was stubborn and we were stubborn too, let's face it. And we, he wouldn't budge and he didn't ship and we wouldn't budge and we wouldn't pay. So off to court we go. We were in the Southern, Southern District of Ohio. Fast forward through everything. We get to cross motions for summary. You know, you litigate for a couple of years and about 30 days before the trial date, uh, we won on most of the case. Uh, there's some details that aren't, aren't interesting here. So we prevail. We get up to the Sixth Circuit. And I should mention that the district court judge was brilliant. She had gone to Harvard Law School, and I think, I, but I think she was a med mal lawyer. She, was, she might have been a personal injury lawyer in, by trade before she became a judge. And, and she just hadn't had Article II since law school, right? It wasn't her thing. But she was brilliant, and, and she, it took her a while, but she, she caught up pretty quickly. And we got, a, we, we got a good opinion, and we finally get up. And I've been kind of for th three years now, right, after you get to the Sixth Circuit. It's been a few years, and I'm saying, I did everything right. When's someone going to recognize this? So we finally get to oral argument, and Judge Sutton, uh, I think his first name is Jeff, Jeff Sutton, uh, on the Sixth Circuit, he uh, is on the panel of three, and he says – from the bench, and I'm sitting there at counsel table, uh, appellate counsel uh, led the argument. I just, I was a potted plant, I admit that, at the Sixth Circuit. And he said, well, wait a minute. This customer, Bielstein, they did everything right, didn't they? I mean, I mean, they wrote the, they got a threat. They wrote the letter. He didn't go back. They, they went to the next step in the UCC. H how can they be blamed when they follow the law to the T? You're sitting there saying, thank you. Thank you, Judge. Exactly. I, I wanted to make, I, I wanted to make, pretend like I was in church and stand up and say hallelujah because <laughs> it was like, God, somebody finally recognized that we followed the law. We did the right thing. And yeah. it was, it was, I don't know, rewarding or refreshing or whatever word you want to use. But I said, thank you, Lord. Uh, somebody finally recognized that we followed the law. We did what we were supposed to do. And we prevailed on the appeal, but it was two to one. One of the judges mm -hmm. voted against us. So it, it, because, frankly, the equities were pretty compelling for this guy. This poor guy's a family-owned business, and he's losing money. And I, I get that. I get the I get the human side of this. But at the end of the day, you sign a long-term fixed-price contract, and, and you're kind of stuck. And so, yes, we won the case. It was close. Uh, I, I'm not one of these lawyers. Oh, I win every case. I lose a lot of cases, man. I'll just tell you that right now. I, I, I've had my you know what, handed to me many times uh, in the courtroom. But it was just, it was really rewarding. And to me, the reason I mention it is because it exemplified, if you get in on the ground floor, there's nothing Machiavellian about this. It's really about being reasonable and acting in good faith and just making the right noises. I, I find a lot of what I do, eh, maybe a third, maybe, maybe a quarter, maybe not quite a third, is, is writing. I'm just copy editing and writing letters 
and writing emails for clients who they may be brilliant engineers. They can tell you about a dimension to the nanometer and they can get a laser to hit the spot, but they're not wordsmiths. That's not what they do all day. And then they shouldn't be. They're not wordsmiths and they're also not aware of and sensitive to the contours of the law. Exactly. You're exactly right. And and they they just don't know. And I would say 80, 90% of commercial disputes are two people operating in good faith. And it's our job to try to tell them what the law is, tell them when to be reasonable. Sometimes you have to, you know, that old quote, you have to have the practice of a decent lawyer is you have to tell them you're a damn fool and you should stop. You have to do that too sometimes. And so yeah. uh, I think good lawyers, I'm, I'm actually one of those lawyers, I like when there's a good lawyer on the other side. When I see somebody who's really talented and know what, the, know what they're doing on the other side, I say, good. We'll be at least in the same ballpark, maybe not on the same field, but we're not going to be on different planets. So uh, I agree 100%, Max. Right. Now, it's interesting that the panel was still divided two to one, and it sounds like you didn't completely get the result you wanted at the trial court level. Just curious, what was, to hear you describe it, like a good attorney? Look, this was uh, cut and dried. Um, you had the law on your side and the other side didn't. But what was their um, their argument? I, I understand there's these the equities um, and the sort of optics. There was messiness, right? There were obsolescence claims that we hadn't paid and he wanted us to pay. And the questions were whether they were within the bounds of the contract or not. And, and there was some ambiguous language. Another ambiguity, uh, and this is caused by these these computer systems that drive me insane as a lawyer. But uh, they have something called enter enterprise resource planning systems. And so if you're a buyer, if you're a purchasing agent at a big company, you're not writing out handwriting purchase orders. You enter into their software and you load it up. You would say, you know, Max Goss Automotive or whatever the company is. Type it in. Here's the price. Here's the part. Here's the company. And you hit a button. And some of these systems will not allow you to put in certain terms. You have to put in numbers, and, and they have these date ranges. So one issue, and just to give you an example of sort of the fuzziness and messiness of the case, the contract said that the date range needed a number. So my client inserted 999999. Well, what does that mean, right? Does that mean, you know, December 31st, 100 years from now? Well, the argument was it at least meant a long-term contract or life of program. And when, in fact, I think what most people with common sense know is they just had to fill in a range, right? It was intended to be an open-ended contract. And two of the judges, I believe the second judge was uh, Alice Batchelder. I could be wrong about that. I, I may be mixing up my appeals. I've done a few down the Sixth Circuit. But whoever the other judge, along with Judge Sutton, was, Agreed and said, yeah, that, that's just a date range. Uh, nobody should understand that as being, you know, to 2099 or whatever the thing was. But it was an argument they made that at least if you're a supplier and you get that, you think I have a long-term contract and they can't terminate it. And that trumps their ability to terminate me for convenience. Well, of course, when a supplier stops shipping and we're going to shut down an OEM, we're going to go try to find a new supplier. And we did. So we moved all the business and they were upset about that. So that's just an example. I, I don't want to get into too great a detail sure. for listeners, but just an example of how things get fuzzy. There's no perfect case, right? I mean, well, we, we in law school, we dream up perfect cases, but the reason we get to trial and the reason we get to appeals is there's there's merit to both sides' arguments. And the other thing that uh, I've observed that in, in law school, you study contracts and you read all these cases and you think, how did this even happen? I mean, look, you have... This could all be avoided 
um, if the parties just had a, you know, put a little more into the negotiation and yet dispute after dispute after dispute comes out of poor drafting or once it's drafted for not managing uh, <laughs> the relationship properly. Uh, and it's also avoidable. But then once you get into the practice of law, you become much more aware of the realities uh, of business and how these negotiations goes and how, how business goes and how relationship-based it is and how many ambiguities and complexities <laughs> there are. And it, it becomes very clear why these disputes uh, erupt. A couple things on that. It always amazes me what the similarities is between criminal law and civil law. When I was a prosecutor, our boss used to say, remember, 99.9% .9 of people are not criminals or good people. We just get the worst of the worst. I think the same thing applies with commercial relationships. I have to remind our younger people, remember, 99% of contracts go smoothly. They don't call lawyers to sue each other. And therefore, if you looked at it globally, if, if you looked at the whole iceberg, you'd say, well, if 99% of my contracts won't be litigated and we won't even have a dispute, why would I make the investment of calling a lawyer and figuring out all this ambiguities? We'll just work it out. Even if we have a dispute with a good customer, we'll just work it out. And they do. The problem is when they don't. And when they don't, we lawyers come in as Monday morning quarterbacks and say, why in God's name would you agree to a $20 million contract on two pieces of paper, right? I've had that case. And they just do. And then we're left to uh, fight over those ambiguities. But I think we always have to remember their perspective is, I'm going to issue thousands of POs, purchasers this year. I'm only going to fight about two or three. With all due respect, lawyers, I'm not going to sit here and run everyone by you. I just don't have time. And so it, it becomes a yield management or a triage thing. Yeah. You said that in the ThyssenKrupp, the Bilstein case, it sounded like you had a great in-house kind of um, partner in that who got the vision and you really had you know great cooperation with your client. Is that true of all clients? Do they all get the vision <laughs> of uh, shaping is, the, the narrative from day one? Is that rhetorical, Max? You know the answer to that one, man. We only pitch softballs here on the litigation war room, Dan. Yeah, right, right. Thank you. I, I as, as the hitter, I really appreciate that. Unfortunately, not only is it not always, it's actually pretty rare. I think in-house counsel kind of have to learn that. My favorite in-house counsel are the ones who have worked in litigation. They understand how the sausage is made, what a mess it is. They respect the, call it the ugliness of the process without castigating the judicial system, and, and they're realistic about it. It is difficult sometimes to work with in-house counsel who come right out of law school, get an in-house job, or they do so much, right, that they handle everything. If there's an appointment dispute, they have it. If there's a compliance issue, they handle it. If there's a tax issue, they handle it. Oh, we have a supply chain dispute. What do I do? And then they dabble and they try to handle it themselves. And instead of making us the starting pitcher, they wait till the seventh or eighth or even ninth inning, and then it's a big mess and they hand it off to us. By then, the die is often cast, and it's very tough. So, yeah, would I like to be on the ground floor all the time? Sure. Uh, we even have clients some who wait until they just got sued or they're about to get sued. And then they say, hey, Dan, can you help us out? Sure. You know, of course, we take our clients as they come. But just like a doctor, the earlier you catch anything, the, the better off you are. One more question on this topic for you, Dan. What's one thing that every lawyer needs to understand about setting the table for a dispute or a possible dispute at the earliest stage? Setting the table, one is expectations. 
and documentation, I, I, well, I guess that's two things, but one is what are you trying to accomplish? A lot of people call, they'll rant on for 30, 40 minutes, and then you stop them and say, okay, where do you want to be? You just told me where you are, where do you want to be? And then they pause and say, I don't know. So I think whether it's pre-dispute or during the dispute, they have to really set where they want to be, what they're willing to budge on, and what they're not willing to budge on a contract negotiation. And then when they get in a dispute, what they really want to accomplish. A lot of people call you and they're angry because the other party isn't, you know, operating in bad faith, et cetera, and not being a good partner. And you say, okay, understood. But where do you want to go? Tell me where you want to go. I know the I know the law in this area. I can tell you whether you can get there or not, usually relatively quickly. So I think the good clients understand when they need to get you involved. We have people who call us once a year and everything's on fire and they should have called us two weeks ago. We have people who've sort of almost overlearned the lesson. And I, I, some people, I feel like I talk to every day, maybe not every day, but three times a week. But there is a point when the customer starts making threats or the supplier says, you know, starts making threats where it is much better to get a lawyer involved from the beginning, shape the communications. And you're, you're not just communicating with a customer supplier. You are writing potential exhibits to the trial, right? And, and, and the depositions. People don't realize that when they're, when they're tapping off text messages and emails. That's one of my own slogans. I don't write emails. I prepare exhibits. Yeah, right. um, and I think it goes for our clients as well. Exactly. We think these things will, will stay private, but uh, when the unthinkable happens, everything gets trotted out. Well, and we all have war stories about clients who've sent very bad emails and texts. Uh, and I can tell you story after story in the automotive supply chain where a buyer or salesperson did that. What's nice now is one of my former clients, he was the head of purchasing at Wabasto Sunroofs. He is now a professor of supply chain management at Michigan State. And I go up once a semester and I teach the legal class for procurement 371, which is interesting, but mostly juniors in college, you know, 20, 21 year olds. And I try to tell them, you know, in 90 minutes, here's here's the 10 dumb things not to do when you get your first job as a buyer in a couple of weeks. And, and and years later, sometimes I get calls from them and they say, hey, I'm glad, I'm glad you told me that at Michigan State. That was one of the few things I, that really helped me. Wow, that's great. I didn't realize you taught a class or taught a session as part of that class. How long have you been doing that? Four or five years now. I think maybe six. Again, a Professor Mike Thibodeau is his name. He's a uh, supply chain professor up at Michigan State. He, After he retired, he went and got his PhD and uh, became a professor. And it's it's sort of like you know grabbing the apple off the tree. You get them when they're young and before they learn bad habits. Well, Dan, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Really appreciate your insights. Really appreciate your, your very interesting stories and sharing with us a few things about uh, the Bilstein case and, and your practice in general. If our listeners want to find you and learn more about you and your practice, um, how can they do so? Well, uh, my bio is on online. You could just Google uh, or, or, or do an internet search. I use DuckDuckGo now, but uh, it's uh, Brooks, Wilkins, Sharkey, and Turco's our firm name, www.bwst-law.com. Feel free to call me. I'm not shy. My direct dial is on there. It's 248-971-1712. And my email's on there as well, which is uh, Sharky, S-H-A-R-K-E-Y, at B as in Bravo, W as in Whiskey, S as in Sierra, T as in Tango-Law.com. Spoken like a true JAG lawyer. <laughs> well, thanks so much. Really appreciate your making time for this and sharing your insights today. 
Thank you, Max. I appreciate the forum. I think it's a great idea you had, and I'm, I'm glad I was able to contribute. Hey, guys, I want to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, Fort's Legal Support. As busy litigators, there are never enough hours in the day. Why use a bunch of different legal support providers when there's one you can trust for all your needs? Need a process server in Chicago or a trial presentation specialist in L.A.? How about a court reporter in Dallas or a computer forensic expert in Atlanta? Forts Legal has you covered. I use Forts Legal in my litigation practice. They are responsive, economical, and ready to help every step of the way. By leveraging cutting-edge technology and best-of-class resources, Forts Legal is a trusted partner of solo attorneys and AmLaw 100 law firms alike. Contact Forts Legal today to learn how their team can assist your law practice. Visit them at fortslegal.com. That's F-O-R-T-Z-L-E-G-A-L.com. Or call 844-730-4066. You have been listening to The Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room. And please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them and not those of the Litigation War Room.